Welcome to EdSpark 21, the podcast from Battelle for Kids, dedicated to capturing conversations and spreading the word to accelerate 21st century deeper learning for every student. This episode, Battelle for Kids CEO Dr. Karen Garza talks with Tony Wagner, Senior Research Fellow at the Learning Policy Institute and author of several books, including Most Likely to Succeed, The Global Achievement Gap, and Learning by Heart, due out in April of 2020. At our 2019 annual event, a convening of our national network members, nearly 700 innovative education leaders from around the country came together to learn and share their practices in 21st century learning. One of the keynote speakers our members had the opportunity to hear from was Tony Wagner. After his presentation, we had a conversation that I'm pleased to share with you today. I first wanted to start with kind of your perspective around why do we need to consider a change in our school systems today? You know, our education system was designed at the dawn of the industrial era to solve a specific problem. How do we take large numbers of immigrants and large numbers of kids moving off of farms and train them for factory work and give them minimal literacy and numeracy skills for work and for basic citizenship. But that was 100 years ago. And then we decided, no, we now have a predominantly a knowledge economy, so we have to fill kids' heads up with more knowledge in addition to what we were doing before. But the problem is we no longer have a knowledge economy. We have the innovation era. The world no longer cares how much our kids know. What the world cares about is what they can do with what they know. That's the competitive advantage in the 21st century. So we have to reimagine education for the innovation era, for work, learning, citizenship, and I would argue active and creative leisure. These are the, the new challenges that we face as educators. I find that so, I love the way you put that, and that is um, you know, our schools should be a reflection of what the needs for the workplace, right? And that's what, you know, we were designed for that at that time, the needs of the workplace and of our society have changed, but our schools still are pretty much fixed in that, in that old mo model largely. So, you know, we're 19 years into the century. Um, so if you could, you know, project out another 20 years, where do you hope we are in education? Well, the first thing I think is to completely reimagine accountability. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I think the accountability system we have is the greatest obstacle to significantly transforming the classroom. I actually think it's really made teaching worse in many mm -hmm. places that I've seen. Teaching to dumb down tests, you know? What gets tested is what gets taught. And if you're, you're testing factual memorization, then that's what you teach. Mm -hmm. So I think that the transformation of the accountability system and what I call accountability 2.0 being developed together with business leaders. We got accountability 1.0 because business leaders, number one, didn't trust educators. They thought unions were only there to protect jobs. So they thought teachers only wanted jobs for life. But more importantly, they, they were impatient and said, all right, you guys aren't getting the job done here. We are going to have to step in, and we're going to pressure the state governments. We're going to pressure our governors to instill this test-based system. Now they're beginning to understand, hey, we're not getting what we mm -hmm. expected. In fact, we're getting some unanticipated consequences when you just teach to the test. Right. So what I imagine, what I think is beginning to happen, are groups that are beginning to come together, uh, groups of educators, 
who are willing to trust and respect and work with business leaders, because that lack of trust goes two ways. Mm -hmm. And business leaders are willing to work with these educators who understand that they want what's best for kids and for our society, and are willing to create a completely different accountability system, one that is accountability for what matters most. Mm -hmm. uh, why do you think it's so hard to change the current system uh, and why it's so challenging and why so few people right now across the country, so few, such a, um, a small number of school systems across the country are actually engaged in this work? Yeah. Well, first of all, the number has grown exponentially in a decade, thanks in large part to the work you and your colleagues are doing. So let's start with the good news. Okay. But I think the problem is, you know, we have a system that's a century old, mm -hmm. more than a century. and. It's all people know. And we teachers teach in the ways we've been taught. We parents want schools for our kids to look like the ones we went to or wished we'd gone to. It's all we know. And anything that we don't know feels risky. Mm -hmm. And the culture of education in general is risk averse mm -hmm. for good reasons. I mean, we're, we're here to conserve and, and preserve. And so uh, we're, we're not you know, wild risk takers mm -hmm. as, as a profession. And I think there's some positive aspects to that. That's why what we need to do is bring a different kind of ledger sheet to the conversation. Mm -hmm. Here are all the risks that you can anticipate in attempting to change. But let's look at the risks of not changing, mm -hmm. the risks to kids, the risks to our society of graduating large numbers of kids who are completely ill-prepared, not just for work, but not prepared for citizenship either. So there are huge risks that we're already running in not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And so you have to help people understand, hey, it's a cost-benefit analysis. And yeah, there, there are risks. You know, trying to change is, is hard. You know, gonna be, there's going to be trial and error. There's going to be some things that don't work. But not changing mm -hmm. may be the greater risk. In your keynote address that we had the fortune, uh, great fortune to hear you uh, present earlier, you really spoke a little bit about what you think accountability 2.0 might include. And I'd like for you to address that because sometimes people have the mistaken notion that if this is important work, then we need to measure all of it at the state level and come up with some test that measures it efficiently. And, and we know you can't do that. What you just yeah. described or some of the most powerful assessment practices that we can possibly employ, but that doesn't work at the state level, no. at, at, at a you know, macro level. So, so there's systems accountability that? and then there's local mm -hmm. accountability. Systems accountability has to revolve around testing, assessing critical thinking, analytic reasoning, problem solving to a degree, and certainly communication, oral and written communication. All of those things can be a assessed at a systems level. But we squander large sums of money testing nearly every child every year mm -hmm. and using very low quality tests. So the simple solution, what most of the world does, is test kids about every three years and only test demographically representative sample populations of kids for system accountability. And the result is they freed up huge sums of money to use much better tests, tests like the college and work readiness assessment mm -hmm. and others that are tests of the skills that truly matter, and that are able to put more money then into teacher preparation, teacher training, curriculum, and so on. 
as school leaders, what are the moves that you would make? What are some things that yeah. you would suggest that they look at and consider? Well, first of all, I think creating a profile of a graduate, once you've helped your community to understand why change, to creating the urgency and understanding for change, then working towards, well, what are the most important outcomes? What should our high school graduates know and be able to do and be like as human beings? What's the content knowledge that matters? But more importantly, what are the skills? And how do we continue to nurture intrinsic motivation and the dispositions like resilience that matter most? Then that may take a year or more to create mm -hmm. that profile. Then I think you, you have to work selectively and choose a few things to really begin to assess. Because the assessment is where the rubber meets mm -hmm. the road. If a profile, it's, a, it's an aspirational statement. And if you're not trying to create some form of a, an assessment, it doesn't mean very much. And then state accountability will invariably trump what it is you're trying to do in terms of transformation, learning, and teaching. Sometimes when I'm talking with other colleagues and in other school districts across the country, sometimes they will say, well, Karen, that, that work sounds interesting and good, but I have the state accountability system that I have to concern myself with, so I can't, can't do the work you're kind of suggesting. What would you say in response to that? Uh, accountability, state <clears throat> accountability being used as potentially an excuse for not really um, transforming a school system. Well, to not do this work is to leave our kids in jeopardy. We need to understand this is all about the kids, not about ourselves looking good with a better test. So that's the first point. Let's keep the focus where it needs to be, on kids and on what matters most for their lives. And we know that state accountability tests do not measure what matters most. They do not measure the skills and dispositions that matter for work, learning, citizenship. So that has to be the continuous message from leaders. So I think we have to work in two domains. We have to work in a, a different kind of accountability system that's reciprocal, relational, face-to-face, -face, and based on evidence in our classrooms, in our schools and districts. Every student having a digital portfolio, students having to present and defend work, exhibitions of mastery, and so on. And then at the state level, we, we have to do what we have to do. You know, render right. under Caesar that which is Caesar's. I'm not saying ignore the tests. You can't. But don't become so preoccupied with them that that's all you do. Because those tests are going to change. A growing number of employers are speaking out and saying, OK, you've got kids who come from districts that are, quote, high performing. They can't finish college. Mm -hmm. They don't have the skills we need. You know, over and over again, the, the, the reports come out, employers saying written communication, creative problem solving, and collaboration are the skills that are absolutely in demand. And as many as 92% of employers say, your kids that you're sending me are simply ill-prepared. So while we have to sort of pay attention to what state accountability systems require us to do, I think we have to concurrently advocate for accountability 2.0. We have to advocate for an assessment system that truly measures what matters most. Another thing that I think can help is to, to reframe the conversation around what do we, what do we measure? What does measurement mm -hmm. mean? It's one thing to be data driven. Yes, we pay attention to high school graduation rates. Uh, post-secondary completion rates, uh, employment rates, all important data. But there's also evidence. Mm -hmm. How do you know if somebody's trustworthy? Mm -hmm. How do you know if somebody's resilient? How do you know if somebody um, 
empathetic. All these things are absolutely essential for work, learning, and citizenship in the 21st century. But they're not on any test. But they can be assessed through digital portfolios, exhibitions of mastery, students presenting and defending their work. So we have to explain to people that, as, as uh, Einstein once said, what, what, what can be counted isn't always what counts. Mm -hmm. So there's data and there's evidence. And collective human judgment informed by evidence is actually, in many cases, the equal to or better than mere data. We often talk about um, you know, our desire and hope at some point in the future that we have state accountability and local accountability that's equally valued. Right. And you, you uh, sometimes mention and talk about accountability, that face-to-face -face accountability right. with the parent right across the table from you or the student or your community. So talk a little bit about kind of that notion of, you know, we need to embrace local accountability as equally you know, important as state Absolutely. accountability. Well, give an example. Very few state tests require any kind of writing at all. Contrast that with employers who say that's the number one mm -hmm. skill. So local accountability is all about looking at student work, for example, together. Mm -hmm. And you take a batch of papers and you say, all right, uh, you gave this paper an A, I gave it a B minus. Um, what did you see that I didn't see? Or more importantly, here's our standard for effective communication. Does this paper or this speech meet that standard, that performance standard? So that local accountability is driven by performances, by, by digital portfolios, by a body of work that is looked at over time by teams of educators. Um, that's the essence of local accountability. It revolves around looking at student work and deciding very clearly whether or not it meets the standards and bringing employers and college folks in to help you answer that question. Learned this years ago from Debbie Meyer, who had kids keep these digital portfolios and where they had to present and defend work in order to graduate. She would invite college professors and employers in to randomly sample her graduates' portfolios to audit them to see, does this meet your standard for work ready and college ready? So that's how we bring uh, the community into the conversation around face-to-face -face accountability. Tell us a little bit about your perspective on this notion of failure as a key piece of the learning process and this and iteration. Yeah. Well, I, I want to distinguish for a moment between failure versus iteration. Iteration is a process of trial mm -hmm. and error without any stigma attached to the error. It's seen as essential to the learning process or to the process of innovation. It's a process of iteration. How do we learn to talk? How do we learn to walk? You know, what if we said to kids, I'm sorry, you cannot walk until you can walk in a straight line, none of this crawling stuff, and you mm -hmm. can't talk until you can speak in grammatically correct and complete sentences. No, mm -hmm. that's not how we human beings learn. So I want to get failure entirely out of the conversation in education. I think it's extremely destructive. It creates a, a whole community of uh, risk aversion and compliance for adults as much as for kids. Because mm -hmm. everybody's afraid of being judged. Everybody's afraid of, of kind of falling behind in the bell curve. You know, the more mistakes you make, the worse your bell curve status mm -hmm. is. 
But that's not how the adult world works. Number one, I just explained it's not how learning happens, real right. learning. Number two, that's not, adults aren't being constantly judged with a B plus or a C minus or 89 or 37. Mm -hmm. You know, my popular joke in talks is, do you really want to fly with a C minus airline pilot? You know, somebody's pretty good at takeoffs, not so good at landings. Right. Right. No, there's, the, the adult world work is A, B, or incomplete. You're considered mm -hmm. competent, that's how you get a job. Your work is incomplete, so you've, you've proven competent. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally, human excellence is acknowledged and rewarded. Well, and also in the, in the world of work, you know, a project is not just you do it and then you get whatever grade and you're done with it, right? It's, it's you get feedback on it. Correct. You keep perfecting it. Right. You're uh, most of the time working in teams of people, problem solving yeah. and, and iterating and coming up with new and novel ideas to, to yeah. impact that. So I mean, that is the real world of work. And it's how I taught writing. You know, mm -hmm. we, I, re I quickly realized to put a lot of red marks and a letter grade on a paper, invariably means that paper lands right there in the trash can as kids are going out mm -hmm. the door. They look one, le one, one minute, look at the grade, they're done. Whereas mm -hmm. if you have a, a writer's workshop where people are trying new things, are learning from each other, are hearing one another's experiments and iterating on those mm -hmm. experiments, and then you look at a body of work over the course of a semester or an entire year, you have a completely different picture of what a student is capable of. And more importantly, you've motivated a student to want to continue to get better. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when I talk with school superintendents or with practitioners in some places across the country, they'll say, well, deeper learning or 21st century learning is, is fine for you know, children in affluent areas or suburban areas, but in the schools I work, we've got to focus on basic skills. So <laughs> there's some very serious problems with that point of view. There, there's some, but it's it's deeply rooted with yeah. some some people. I mean, it's really yeah. hard for them to break through that notion. So if you if you were well, here's talking my answer. about first of all, kids that. from affluent communities are learning a lot of these skills around the dinner table, uh, on weekends when they're being taken to museums or other kinds of interesting field trips to learn to think critically about what they're seeing, to converse and communicate effectively. Their summer experiences are incredible. It's the kids who don't have those things, who have maybe only one parent who's working two jobs, who can't read to them at night, who, who can't engage them in a conversation around the dinner table because they have to go out the door for their second job. It's those kids who, even more than the most affluent kids, need these skills for the 21st century. That's point one. Point two, which we rarely talk about, is the issue of motivation. I taught at-risk kids my first five years in a public high school. You don't motivate kids to get better by drilling them and remediating them and having them do work over and over and over again. You have to begin with a spark of curiosity, mm -hmm. the spark of interest. Mm -hmm. And that's what often projects and other kinds of more hands-on learning are able to bring to the classroom that mere remediation won't. I mm -hmm. found out over and over again with my at-risk kids that I had to really try to understand what is it they were interested in, curious about. I said, you can read and write about anything you want. This is an English class. Mm -hmm. So what do you want to learn? What are you curious about? Mm -hmm. And that's a completely different approach to remediation than the, the kind of drill and mm -hmm. kill approach. Well, it's interesting to me because you know, sometimes people will say, well, this is a little bit of a fad, isn't it, Karen? I said, no, it's not. It's actually the kind of work 
the kind of experience that we're talking about for students is directly aligned with how we know human beings best learn. Yes, exactly. And somewhere along the way, we lost our way, and we thought we thought if kids were behind or needed some acceleration in some areas, that we need to put them in rows and, and drill them, as you just suggested, which is counter to how we know right. a human being learns. Right. And so, you know, these school districts that we work with, we have a great fortune of working with, understand that and have completely flipped the notion of what it what it means to design an experience for students that's really meaningful, where they have some voice and choice and, and content, but that's much more engaging. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned the issue of fads, though, because I do think we in education can sometimes be too fad-driven. Mm -hmm. And so it's project-based learning is the flavor of the month this year. And people think, well, 21st century learning always means projects. No, there's many strategies. Project-based learning is one very powerful strategy. There's inquiry learning that's focused around essential questions, driving a curriculum. There, there are, there's Socratic dialogues. There's so many different ways in which we can teach these essential competencies. And to only advocate or even assume there's only one way sets us up, I think, for criticism from the outside. I agree with that. Again, Tony, you're um, one of the most significant influencers in this field, so I want to thank you. It's really an honor to have an opportunity to visit with you today, and we appreciate so much your support of our work and of our network at Leader 21, so thank you. Well, it's just been a great pleasure because you folks are doing the real work. You know, I just talk about it, but the real work, the hard work of transforming the learning and teaching is the work you do every single day. So well, I thank you for your work. Thank you very much. One of the many joys I have in my role here at Battelle for Kids is interacting and collaborating with education thought leaders like Tony Wagner. I'd like to thank Tony not only for his participation in this episode of EdSpark 21, but also for the great work he does in advancing 21st century learning for every student. In episode three, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Talisa Dixon, Superintendent of Columbus City Schools. The EdSpark 21 podcast is a production of Battelle for Kids. Battelle for Kids collaborates with school systems and communities to realize the power and promise of 21st century learning for every student. Go to bfk.org to learn more. The music heard in this podcast is On Fire by Sasha Ende, copyright 2019, and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All other content in this episode of EdSpark 21 is the intellectual property of Battelle for Kids. Other podcasts and blog posts from Battelle for Kids can be found at bfk.org. <laughs>